Today's show is brought to you in association with ClassicFootballShirts.co.uk, the world's biggest collection of football shirts. They are bringing their pop-up shop to Dublin South End Street from the 5th to the 11th of November, with over a thousand items in stock, including classic Ireland kits, legend prints, and all of your favourite hipster choices, as well as a gallery of match-worn Ireland kits and an in-store appearance by Liverpool and Ireland legend John Aldridge on November 8th. It's going to be a paradise for every football fan, so for more info, on the pop-up you can catch the guys on Twitter at Classic Shirts or on Instagram at Classic Football Shirts Sit down Nobody talk Sit down They should win the game they get a point we, we score a perfectly good goal make it 2-0 game's done done dusted we win the game officials cost us two points today it's standard 10 past 10 most of the children are probably in bed but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants it's unbelievable and Shaqiri hasn't he the funniest shape he's a little chunky fella they'll fight for the tree the joke gone about far this far that help the officials out clearly they need help clearly we play in the Premier League to joke to joke Another week in the books, another week of VAR ruining football and just like Brexit, we're all wondering is it too late to hit the reset button and go back to a time when it was just a funny joke and it was less with on TV. Hello and welcome to this week's Three of the Back podcast. How are you lads? Hey, how are things? How are things lads? So later on the show we'll be chatting to Manuel Vett of Forbes and Football Grab who Football Grad, who is perched in the Signal Iduna Stadium ahead of Borussia Dortmund's Champions League clash with Inter Milan tonight. But we'll be talking about Bayern Munich and the departure of Niko Kovac after a year a bit in charge, who after a mixed start of the season, the club have pulled the plug on his brief tenure. Um, before all that, lads, we had another busy week of Premier League action um, and we had the FEI Cup final as well, which we'll get to a, bit, a little bit later. But let's start with Liverpool's comeback win over Villa um, so at one point during the three o'clock games on Saturday, I think Liverpool's lead over City was cut to three points and they were facing a potential drop to second place next weekend if they had lost to City there. And then everything changed, um, clawing it back to one all and then the last second winner from Saudi Mane. Phil, we're kind of getting used to Liverpool comebacks, but this was probably the squeakiest bum time yet. Yeah, um, like... I think how squeaky my bum and Liverpool's collective bum was is testament to uh, a lot of great work from Villa, I think. Um, I think Villa, to my mind, were probably the side along with Sheffield United that probably most discommoded Liverpool so far this season and that kind of most knocked them out of their natural rhythm. Um, like when Villa got the goal early and like even the goal, they, um, they tried a few short free kicks. They kind of got Liverpool mm. comfortable with the idea that they were going to go short and all of a sudden they didn't. Uh, they broke Liverpool's line really well, got the goal, and that let them kind of set themselves, got themselves into a nice low block, um, but also picked their time to kind of come up and snipe on kind of, not presses, but like Nakamba went and sniped the ball off Lalana a lot particularly. Like they kind of targeted Lalana's weakness as a ball carrier a little bit um, and set up nice counter-attacks. And then we're just really comfortable with not allowing the fullbacks loads of space like like Spurs did the week previous, but just comfortable in knowing that Liverpool were going to cross a lot and that Mings mm. was going to head it away a lot. Like he, mm. I didn't get ten clearances or something. Um, I thought he, like he was really impressive. Just their whole setup was really impressive, and I think what changed it for Liverpool, like at Old Trafford, was the, the, the substitutions. 
Um, Liverpool were pretty poor for for six, for an hour or sixty five minutes, uh, and then the changes come on sixty four or sixty five. Uh, Chamberlain comes on, Mane shifts right, and Origi is on. Um, all of a sudden, there's kind of a slightly different puzzle for Villa to solve. The midfield in the first half kind of lacked a little bit of tempo. Um, Lallana obviously came in for Fabinho. Um, the, he, he he came in for Fabinho, but didn't replace Fabinho, if that makes sense. Um, in the sense that like Fabinho is, is often left on his own in the middle of that pitch. And Wijnaldum and Henderson, if you look at their average positions for the season, are actually quite close to the fullbacks. Uh, whereas for this game, they were a little bit more tucked into Lallana. The three of them had to kind of carry each other's water a bit. But when Chamberlain came on, he was breaking the lines a little bit from deep, having shots from range, which Liverpool didn't have. And Mane was popping up on the right-hand side. And that's where the first goal came from. Um, and I thought like the, the substitutions really changed Liverpool's performance. And Villa were probably unlucky. I don't think they would have been flattered by three points. They definitely wouldn't have been flattered by a point. So, I mean, you can look at it as... Um, championship-worthy form from Liverpool to kind of get a win, but um, I'd rather they stop doing it for my own health. Yeah, I well, yeah, it was a weird game, lads. To be honest, um, I still just even listening to Phil there it kind of nearly skews how I viewed the game or how I kind of thought the game went. I mean. I nearly was as I was watching the game. I nearly prefaced the Liverpool. I was like waiting for the Liverpool comeback. Do you know what I mean? So when it happened, it was like it was like nearly like football stoicism. Like when it happened, I was just like, oh, I was expecting that anyway. And do you know what I mean? Even though it was like the last couple of seconds, you know. Um, I suppose overall, I think my you know as a Villa fan and kind of watching it as a as a football fan from an objective view as possible was that you just have to admire that Liverpool side really more than anything else. Like I, I tweeted it like directly kind of after the game. I was just like, they're just relentless. It's it's like you just, I've got the feeling of, and I've had the feeling pretty much at the start of the season that this was and is, is going to be Liverpool's year because not just because of results like that, I mean, that does help, and you know, against Sheffield United, against Leicester, they kind of pull out the fire when they're not playing that well. But it's just, it's the belief in which Klopp has instilled in them through his philosophy that they will keep on going to the end. They will find a way. If it's not down the wings, you know, it'll be through the centre. It'll be somebody like Oxley Chamberlain coming on, and or, or a Lalana coming on, or do you know what I mean? It's just, or an Origi. It's just. They seem to have a route to, to find a way all the time. Um, so, yeah, it was like, you know, as much as I was kind of... Like, I, I, like I wasn't... It's not that I wasn't overly impressed with Villa. Like, Villa have been doing this all season long. Like, anybody who's watched Villa, like, um, on a weekly basis, like, they've done this to, like, teams. They've done it. They've led it... Um, Spurs, they've led it. Uh, Arsenal, they've they've, they've led it. Uh, Liverpool until late capitulations. Be, uh, purely because, look, lads, you're talking about a Villa side who have made like the there was of the eleven players who started against Liverpool, ten of them are brand new players. The only player who started last year who was who was permanent by was John McGinn. Um, so I mean, like, there's a lot of changes to this Villa side, and like. You know they're they're still gelling, but like they've been playing that way and that well all season long. 
But you just have to give it to Liverpool. Like, yeah, it's just... You, you, you just got that sort of... You've just got that feeling about them. Um, yeah, it's more admiration that I kind of have for it more than anything else. You mentioned Villa's chilling there um, and obviously all the changes over the summer. And I thought, and I think I tweeted it at the time, they have a couple of individuals there. They mightn't be there as a team just yet, mm. um, but they have a couple of individuals that if they keep up that kind of form are going to get swiped um, fairly quickly. I mean, John McGinn, for the couple of million they spent on him, I've never not been impressed with him. I think he has... The way he's able to just kind of take the ball and nearly kind of greedish like and just pull mm. away from from a defender mm. or from a defensive midfielder, um, and I think maybe his decision making kind of lets him down at times. Then he mm. might hold on for for too long, um, but for the sake of a couple of million, he's been an absolutely cracking sign. Yeah, um, yeah. And my other point then on Tyrone Mings, and I mean, what was the twenty odd million you signed him for? And twenty originally. Yeah, he's already an England international. Mm. The way he's playing, he's probably quickly solidifying his starting position there for England mm. um, he looks an absolute fortress at the back mm. um, and you just Nakamba as well had a couple of moments in midfield mm. um, there's, a, there's a lot of good individual play there and I think mm. just a little bit of patience required and like you said taking the leads against bigger sides um, mm. just being able to see it out because there's some quality there yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from a Villa perspective, uh, I think the points had we had we held on to the points that we led that we that we accrued from from leading positions, I think we'd have been like fourth or, th- or third or something like that, which is which is phenomenal. So obviously, like you know, as as a promoted team, you know, with a lot of new players, um, yeah, it's a work in progress, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, you, like you said, Kev. Like, I mean, Villa have signed particularly well this summer. Um, they've got Nakamba there, who looks who looks a steal at eleven million. John McGinn was two and a half million. Grealish obviously is, is coming through the academy. Like, the, the point you, you you make is that like these guys are going to be like snipped away from us, and I I, I disagree. I don't think they will be. Um, I, well, and if they are, it ain't going to be on the cheap. Like John McGinn mm. was all, is already, you know, mentioned uh, signing for United at maybe like sixty odd million. Like there's no way he's already signed a new um, four or five year deal um, in the summer, so he's not going to go for any less than sixty seventy million. Uh, Grealish, Grealish at this point, like same, same, same. And, and all these players who have been brought in at like you know Tyrone Mings 20 million initially like Tyrone Mings now by the end of the season is going to be worth probably about 50 60 million mm. again the the, the the reason why and it, these aren't like individually brilliant buys they're they're good players in their own right but they play and are going to be valued at, mo- at larger sums because of because of Dean Smith's in inverted commas philosophy so the new owners have employed Dean Smith and his coaching staff to play attack in football to instill a philosophy within the club that will carry on. And so we can lose players and replace them. And essentially, the, the players... Be, it, it's, 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 it's a bit like... Um, do, you remember, do you remember in Southampton under Pochettino? And then... Um, yeah. Who, who was it? There was a couple... There was basically a, Koeman then, there was basically, you know, Leicester as well to a certain degree, like they've basically installed a philosophy within the club. They play attacking football and basically the players that they bring in for like 10 to 20 million, 
play brilliantly, their value shoots up, they're sold on, and then the process is repeated. Now you can obviously you can you can you can only go so far um, with that before you know the whole process get process gets diluted. Um, and you eventually kind of go tits up, maybe the way Southampton are at the minute. But overall, um, I think the likes of McGinn and Grealish and Mings, these guys are all going to hang around um, a villa if, if we do well, because the money that um, Nasir Sawiri and Edwin, uh, uh, Wes Edens, um, who own Villa, have, they're the third richest, financially richest club in England. So I mean, with that backing, you hold, you can hold on to these players. They don't need to be sold. Um, so yeah, it, it's you know I I get the feeling, and it's why I'm I wasn't overly disappointed by all these late defeats. Or, um, or, or you know, is that yeah. you can see a pattern at Villa, um, and and you know, I mean, in my opinion, like it's a very very bright future. But you know, in in terms of like the Villa Liverpool game, like. That's where you want to, as a Villa as a club, that's where they want to get to, the, you know, what, what Klopp has done with Liverpool. Because let's be honest, lads, like when Klopp took over Liverpool, uh, they weren't really in great shape. Do you know what I mean? So, like, it's taken four years to get them to this level. And bloody hell, how good do they look? Indeed. Um, and Phil, on Liverpool's... Um, set up in this game um, we kind of saw this Lalana number 6 experiment against Arsenal during the week in the League Cup um, and I didn't think he played particularly well um, I thought Keita and Chamberlain and himself didn't really work together that's why I was surprised to see him play there again on um, against Villa and I was especially surprised to see Henderson alongside him because I think when you've both of them in the same infield you're sucking a lot of life out of it. Um, and that's something that obviously when Chamberlain came on and um, kind of changed the flow of the game. How do you see Lalanne in this role? Like, I mean, he got a massive goal against United and maybe Klopp's kind of repaying that that return. Um, do you, you just talk of him, his contract being extended, but he's obviously well below pecking order um, and probably wouldn't have started if Fabino wasn't um, at risk of getting a suspension from yellow cards. Yeah, I, I suppose there's two, there's two things to remember on uh, about Lallana starting this game. First of all, Klopp loves him. Klopp has consistently picked him when available um, in, in a variety of different roles, but Klopp really loves what Lallana brings to the team in terms of that kind of trigger as a press. And the second thing is Klopp really likes uh, giving players the opportunity to put ghosts to bed. So you see it more typically if, uh, and a good example is Lovren, um, when Liverpool got hammered in Wembley against Spurs a couple of seasons ago, and Lovren had a horror show, got hooked on half-time, or maybe even in the first half. He started the next time they went to Spurs, and Liverpool won. Klopp likes offering that kind of redemption arc, and like you said, Lallana wasn't that impressive against Arsenal uh, during the week. I thought he really struggled. I thought he struggled in some of the same areas on Saturday in terms of, as I kind of mentioned already, um, he was kind of weak in possession, and I thought he was a bit too much of an easy target for Villa to kind of snipe the ball off him. Where he did excel, though, he had 11 uh, recoveries of the ball. Liverpool had 72% of possession, and Lallana won mm. the ball back 11 times. That's not particularly normal. Um, that, like that's, and that's what Klopp really values about him, um, is, is his ability to win, ball, win the ball back. And you don't immediately think of it when you look at him uh, in his build and what you typically think of as Adam Lallana. 
Um, but it's something that Klopp has kind of brought out and it's kind of been a mutually uh, beneficial relationship in that way. And like like you said about Henderson, um, like Henderson had a stinking first half. And like when you take out Fabinho, who's really important to what Liverpool do, and you put in Lallana, who's not going to replicate that job, you need somebody to come in and set the tempo in the way that Fabinho does. And you hope that Henderson might be able to do it. And he just wasn't at the races at all. And like I don't know about you, Kev, but on, on, when those changes went up, I was hoping Henderson was going to be one of the people that was taken off because he was he was giving the ball away, he was slow, he was ponderous, he was all the things that people who don't like Jordan Henderson say about Jordan Henderson. And yeah, then see, all of no, that switch. Sorry, sorry, King. No, on. I was just gonna I was just gonna put in Phil in terms of Henderson. Like if you cede possession to Liverpool, if you let them have the ball. In midfield, he's not going to be um, strength for you. Like he's, he's like you said, he's too ponderous on the ball. He doesn't have the ability to break the lines with passing. Do you know what I mean? It's all all action with with, with Jordan Henderson. If the if the game is stretched yeah. and he can go box to box, and and a team comes out at you like at Liverpool, that's where he he is really good. Yeah, and like when yeah. Chamberlain came in and started to stretch the game a little bit, like you were saying, Kev. And to your point, Kane, like Chamberlain started to break a few lines, have a few shots, things opened up a little bit. Liverpool up the tempo necessarily by the fact that Chamberlain's just a more up tempo player. And um, I think he was uh, Henderson was helped by Mane's switching sides as well. And um, Salah did look to me like he was carrying that angle a little bit, wasn't um, overly involved in a lot of the play, didn't do a huge amount of defensive work. Mane, we, we know the work rate Mane brings, and when he switched over to that right side, I thought. It was evident that Henderson kind of came out. I think he he gave the ball away uh, two times in the last half an hour, and I think he gave it away twenty times in the rest of the game. Mm. Um, so like he he had a really strong last half an hour, aided by those changes. Um, and like I I think the changes sparked the whole team. But to bring back to your original point, Kev, on the Lana, I'm not sure the Villa is the type of game that you necessarily want the Lana being the six. I mean, Brighton at home or Norwich at home. Maybe when um and when things maybe aren't so kind of as structured, if things are a little bit unstructured, but against kind of bottom half opposition at Anfield, and Fabinho needs a rest, I'd be relatively okay with Alana. But in kind of a combative performance, when we're a little bit stuck, and uh, when the, the the opposing team are really disciplined, have a really set plan, um, I I wasn't mad about it for a lot of it. Um, Leds were blue in the face over talking about VAR this season um, we joked about it at the start but I don't think any of us really appreciated how much of an impact it would have on the games um, and I think this weekend between the Firmino offside armpit um, Son getting sent off for an injury that he didn't cause um, there was a couple of instance where, instances where it took three or four minutes to make a decision this felt like the weekend that kind of broke the camels back for a lot of people. Um, you see the likes of Jamie Carragher reneging on his support. Um, a lot of journalists have been very vocal against it. Um, Daniel Story especially has been very critical about it. Phil, we've said so much about it, but where are we with VAR at the moment? Does it need an overhaul? Does it need to be scrapped? Because in its current format, I think it's really not having the desired effect and to throw the old, the old cliche about it, it's kind of ruining the game. Like, I was kind of on the fence about VAR at, at the start of the season. It, I thought it broadly worked well in the World Cup in 2018. Um, I thought if it was going to 
remove a lot of these egregious errors from the game, it was going to be a good thing. But the way it's currently constituted in the Premier League, it's just a monumental load of bollocks. Like, it's absolutely desperate. For the first few weeks, it didn't overrule the ref ever. It basically just ruled on offsides and handballs. Then, for a couple of weeks, it went mad and overruled the ref all the fucking time. And now it's back to backing up the ref. And it's not really bothering about offsides and handballs anymore. It's kind of sucking that off. I, I, I don't, it's all, like, it seems like they're reacting to public outcry about it. And they're kind of modulating the system, depending on what people have said about it the previous weekend. I think the real problem with it, and at the crux, is the lack of accountability about it. So if you're watching on television, you see Martin Atkinson or Michael Oliver or whoever hold his hand up to his ear to hear the hear what Vera's saying. You see the lines being redrawn on the screen at the weekend, which definitely like even if everything's above board, looks like a diddle. Like if I'm just re- redrawing the lines, it looks like a diddle. Then you don't hear any uh, conversation between them, and then the the message is flashed up on the screen. So like where mistakes made with the the naked eye in the past by the referee, you can say, oh, he didn't have the replay. He was doing it at, at, in like real pace. He's he he has him and his assistant referees. There's only three people. Like you know, whatever mistakes happen. Now it looks like real incompetence if mistakes are being made because these lads have access to technology and we don't know what they're saying, but we know they're arriving at debatable decisions. I think if there was a way that you could hear what the rest are saying, if there was a way that the ref could go over and actually use the screen on the sideline, I think that even the optics of it would look a little better if you could hear the sort mm-hmm. of bollocks decisions mm-hmm. they're making, as opposed to, it just feeds, and like, you know football fans don't need any encouragement to kind of get conspir- conspiracy theories going. It just feeds the idea that like, the that Barr is just backing up their ref mates on the pitch and that um, these decisions are being made kind of cloak and dagger when they could have perfectly reasonable positions on it. But if you could just hear it and see it a yeah. little clearer, uh, I think that would be a step. Without a massive overhaul, I think that would be at least a start. The, the fact that we need John Bruin on Twitter two or three days later to explain what VAR was doing with lines mm-hmm. in the case of the Firmino offside says it all because really we should be hearing what he's trying to do and said okay sorry that line is wrong we're completely in the dark about it mm. yeah I, like I, I don't know what's what's more difficult to explain at the minute like VAR or Dublin murders on BBC One <laughs> like both both are equally as absolutely baffling as the other like I mean like it's do you know what's what, what's what's funny more about VAR really I mean and to use another analogy is like VAR and Brexit have like just produced like incredible material and like mm. you know really salient logic about terrible ideas do you know what I mean it's like you're reading stuff like you know from like you know Daniel Story and Ken Early, I think, was making great points in setting captains. Um, where you're just like, you're literally going, Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Like, uh, you know, that, that uh, makes absolutely perfect sense. Like, I think Ken was talking about, um, why I just referred to him as Ken there, like we're mates. Um, <laughs> but, but like, uh, he was referring to, um, to how basically, like, the lads. The, the the referees they are all so one's officiating the match officially and the other one's then in the video room so essentially they're all kind of like officiating on their 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 decisions so there is it nearly a conflict of interest where they're like Jesus I don't want to be like upsetting this fella or I don't want to be like digging him out or I don't want to be yeah. making him look a fool and you're just like 
Yeah. So you can imagine that. Like, you don't want to make somebody in your job, like, look like a tit um, live on TV. And it's only human nature to feel like that. Um, so obviously that's a huge, huge problem. So, I mean, if you need an independent advisor um, or, you, you know, independent referees there to, to, to look over these. But, like, even still, like, you know, when you were, like, seeing Martin Atkinson, who's, like, doing the, the Firmino goal and you were, like, watching him kind of flick the, the, with the lines and all that. I'm, like, looking at it going, oh, my God, I can see with my own two eyes that he is onside. Do you know what I mean? I don't need friggin' lines to look. I can see right in front of me. He's on, like, he's level with Mings. And Jesus Christ, even if he's only a couple of, like, if it, it must be millimetres. Like, and I know I've said it before on, you know, you're either offside or you're onside. I'm actually, I think I'm coming back on that. I'm like... You know, is it like, how can you tell if somebody's like a millimetre offside? Yeah. It's just ridiculous, like. Um, but yeah, Phil, it's, 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 like, it's like you were saying, it's kind of, they're just all over the place. And, and I was reading the, the Jason Burton, the Telegraph last night, that, that um, a meeting of Premier League uh, bosses said that they were, they were looking at giving um, Premier League managers three opportunities each to review referees' decisions. In addition... To what's going on. I mean, if you wanted to pick an idea that would make a shit idea even worse, fair play. Because they've just found it. Like, like, oh my God. You're just sitting there going, what are you doing? Like, they have to scale this back. They have to... And another additional point was that I didn't even realise this, but the Premier League, right, don't even do it the way they do it in Europe. So, like, you know, in the Bundesliga and, and, and I think in Serie A and that, they do it a completely different way. The Premier League have to go out and do it, like, are basically testing this out by themselves. Like, why not just follow the protocol that, that's been laid out for you for, like, a season beforehand? Do you know what I mean? It's just unbelievable. It's literally, that's arrogance more than anything else mm. um, that, yeah. that, that they can go and do it. But, yeah, oh, my God. Like, I, like I, the worst thing is, lads, is it's made an absolute tit of me. Because I've been the one defending for the first like four, five, six weeks, going, "Oh, lads, it's it's the technology, you know, it's not the technology's fault." And maybe I'm actually right to a certain degree, but I didn't realise the scope of human error that is still involved in the actual decision-making process. Yeah, it's madness. And to extend the the Brexit comparison, Europe must be looking over at England and again and look just thinking, yeah. like, "What what are you doing?" Like. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And I don't know, is it the technology wrong, but the application of it just seems completely, completely wrong. Yeah. Um, and I forget to name the referee from the Spurs and Everton game, but he clearly had a yellow card in his hand for Young Min Song. Mm. He looked over, he's like, oh, that's a bad injury. I'm going to give you a red card instead, even though the injury had no impact from what Son had done in the tackle. It was kind of an aftermath of that, a very unfortunate aftermath of that. Oh. That's the kind of stuff that you'd imagine Vera should be knocking on the door and said, hey, have a look at that. that again, get the ref to, because they were taking Andre Gomez off the field anyway. Like mm. He had time to review the footage. But, but under the current rules, can they actually review that? Because the referee is seeing it. Probably not. And, and officiated on it. So I don't Probably think they not. can actually review it. I think they can review red cards. I think so can because they? I think so because they, they they can definitely review yellow cards because in the Arsenal Palace game, 
Atkinson booked Zaha for diving. They went mm. back, looked, it was a penalty, and he rescinded the yellow. So if you can do it to yellows, I'm, I'm guessing you can do it to reds because red cards right. is, one of the, is, is one of the things that's in Barra's remit. It's penalties, goals, uh, red cards, and cases of mistaken identity. Mm. Um, so so, so think, it, the red card's been rescinded, though, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it has. Oh, has it? I wasn't well, sure it, if that story was. The fact that I, it should have been overturned during the game because obviously Everton um, equalised late on. It's You know, it's not saying that Son's absence caused the, the equaliser, but Spurs were down to 10 men for the last um, half hour or whatever it was of the game. And that's going to affect results when it so obviously should be overturned. Um, and fair enough, it should have been rescinded and it has. Um, but it's just the, the application, it's just, it just seems so off at the moment. And I think we've got to a point now where we said so much about it that everyone is just sick of it. And... It has to change. Something has to change about it. Um, so no more VAR talk for this week, I think. Um, yeah. Keen, you'd be glad to move on to uh, to this topic. Um, let's chat about the FEI Cup final um, at the weekend. Oh, more what, exasperation. <laughs> what What were your feelings between, say, the 88th minute when you considered the penalty and the 94th minute when Michael Duffy scored that absolute screamer? I was thinking that we were never, ever going to score. Um, not in a million years, because we didn't, like, Dundalk just didn't look like that, like they, did, they had a goal in them. Um, so, you know, to, for, for, you, do you know what? Like, you can't, you, you, you literally and metaphorically cannot buy moments like that. Like for it was literally the last kick of of the of the regulation ninety minutes, like you know to to or last kick of the game really, and, and to score a goal like that in in you know in the manner that he did was just unbelievable, um, and it wasn't anything that we deserved, uh, frankly. Um, I'd seen lads like you know Dundalk fans and even Gavin McLaughlin from last week saying afterwards that you know he he didn't think that. He didn't think that Rovers had deserved it as much as everybody was making out, which I would kind of like, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with, but I did think that Rovers were the better side mm. and did play the better football. Dundalk, it was a horrible performance from Dundalk. They were hit badly by Chris Shields and, and then Patrick McElhenney's absence as well, um, closer to the game. So uh, I don't think... You know, I don't think it'll be huge, huge, huge disappointment. Um, from from the dog's end, it was still a great season. To, you know, a double season. Um, obviously, it'll feel like a missed opportunity because nobody done the travel since Derry City. But yeah, overall, I don't know. Um, yeah, overall, I think Rovers probably deserved it, but I, I still don't think they played brilliantly. Um, I thought Jack Byrne was fantastic. Yeah, um, brilliant. I thought I thought he really, really was. Again, the dog fans will have a little bit of a have a little bit of a bugbear about the the reaction to Byrne in that you know, look, he's never really shone against the dog. I think that was probably his best performance um, over over ninety minutes. Um, to be honest, but but even then, he still didn't really he, he you know technically speaking, he didn't create any um, any any attempts on goal. And obviously didn't score. 
Um, so so Dundalk fans were a little bit reticent to give him the praise, but overall, like you know, from trying to be as objective as possible, I thought he was brilliant. Mm. Um, picked picked some brilliant passes, control the tempo of the game. Uh, you know, he looked he looked classy. He looked like he he belonged on a bigger stage. Um, which isn't disrespectful to the League of League of Ireland. Like you know, it's just testament to how good a, a footballer he, he is. You know. Um, so just on a, on a wondering, Kane, what do you think it does for Rovers' prospects and their credentials for next year? Like obviously they they still finished a ways off Dundalk this year, but it was yeah, a yeah. way less than it was the year before. Yeah. So. Do, you think it kind of gives them a bit of fire in the belly and a bit of belief that they are closing the gap, or do you think ultimately it actually yeah. doesn't matter that? Mentally, maybe a little bit, absolutely, because you know they've they've finally got over the line against um to get to, to, they've got over the line against the dog, which is which is big, and they've won the first FAI Cup final in, in nearly thirty years, like which which again is big. But let's be honest, lads, like you know over over the course of like you know a league season, you know, the dog beasted it. You know, and they came from behind like it was it was a thirteen point swing, um, or was it, no, sorry, it was a thirteen point lead. Rovers had it was a twenty six point swing, um. So, like, to say that um, you know, this will bring the clubs closer together. I don't think it will overall, and um, depending on what happens over over the close season, um, it was nice for Rovers to win it. I was nice for Bradley to, to you know to to get the monkey off the back because obviously he's been under pressure in terms of um, you know he's got a quality squad at his disposal whether he's able to keep Jack Byrne now is another thing like you know he's, he, he could lose a couple of these players to, to English clubs um, I don't think Jack Byrne's going to be hanging around the League of Ireland too much longer I think he will go back at, at some point um, at some point soon so yeah I, look to be honest, like Dundalk have won five out of six titles for a reason like you know mentally in the League of Ireland they're a monster um, and be, with the backing that they have, um, and and the squad at their at their disposal, they'll not lose too many players, if any at all. Um, I don't, it's like Gavin said last week. I don't think you'll see um, Rovers still challenged in the next year, no doubt. But I don't think they'll 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 get as close as as maybe Rovers fans hope or expect. Um, on Jack Byrne. For a minute, and I think we should probably give a special mention to the interview um, Dan McDonald did uh, with oh, his family in the opinion. Fantastic, yeah. I mean, having read that, I just want him to go on and make 100 caps for Ireland. I mean, it was yeah. just a fantastic story. Yeah, like I, I read it as well. It was actually um, it was Phil who tweeted it, and I'd seen it. Um, I didn't see it initially. Uh, it was brilliant. It was like, and it was, it felt like a different kind of journalism to me in that, like, I don't think it's it probably been done before, but I don't, I don't remember reading a piece like that where it was like, like Dan kind of like introed it and then just kind of step back and, and, and let them have the conversation and just as if you were, and, and wrote it in, in the way that you felt like you were in the room and um, which was actually brilliant. Like it was just very, very different. And, um, but yeah, you were kind of delighted for the lad in a way. Like I mean, uh, like I seen a few people going overboard about his performance, like it was a masterpiece, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, look, it wasn't like it, it, it's you'd swear he'd Zidane this, um, you know, it was it wasn't anywhere near that level. But he was the classiest player on the pitch, and yeah, I would love to see him get some get some minutes against Canada, and then if he makes some sort of impression there, maybe like. I don't. I don't understand why he, he didn't come on against um, against Switzerland. It's like it was just crying out for 
an Irish player to be able to get on the ball, not shit the togs when they're when they're given the ball and be able to pick out a good pass. Do you know what I mean? But look, um, this is it for 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 the time being. Keen, um, how much of a non-story is this Ellen Menace thing, um, not facing the flag for the national anthem? <laughs> yeah, it was it was a weird one. Um, obviously, he's he's come out today and kind of said like uh, that. He meant no offence at all, and I think it was kind of like completely sort of misconstrued. And like, look, he's born in Canada, um, and and you know moved to Northern Ireland when he was seven. Which, which you know, you think he, he said like he would never kind of like offend anybody in in that way. So you have to take the lad at his word. Do you know what I mean? Um, I've seen a few people equated to James McLean, and you know. It's not the look. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. Um, and, and the reason why it's not the same is all. It's not the same at all. Is that basically everybody knows the story about Derry, you know, Bloody Sunday, the British Army, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We don't need to go into it now. But um, for me, like, there would be no reason why a Northern Irish man would come down to Dublin and disrespect the flag, you know. Alaman says that wasn't his intention. You take him at, at his at his word, but there would be no reason for that to happen. And and if, if somebody did feel like they needed to do that, like I would just want to give them a big hug and tell them everything is going to be okay and nobody's here to to kind of upset them or, or harm them and that we're all the same. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, like a big big hullabaloo over nothing, really, lads. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Rob Little, he's the guy who ran away and left his wife for a young man. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs, class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others, and some give you better on it. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in waitress and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're on with Michael Vett of Forbes and Football Grad, amongst others, live from Signal Iduna Park. Manuel, before we get into Bayern Munich and Nico Kovac, how are you set for Dortmund and Inter tonight? I think this is going to be a very interesting interesting game because Dortmund have to have to win this, right, after they um, lost the first leg 2-0. And uh, I was on an Interpod actually just the other day and I said to them, I think that Dortmund are going to win this game, but they're not going to win it by enough to... You know, overturn the two nil um, away away result. Um, so they will have to pretty much win this and then rely on getting the points in the other two games in order to to stay ahead of Inter in the in the group stage. Very good. Um, I suppose the big news this weekend um, was Bayern Munich having sacked Nico mm-hmm. Kovac after just over a year and a bit in charge after a five one loss to Eintracht. Um, but on paper, they they're just five or they're four points off of top place in the Bundesliga. Um, they're top of their Champions League group stay, on stage, unbeaten, um, having beaten Spurs pretty 
emphatically a couple of weeks back. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the what are the circumstances that led to his departure? And you know the results just haven't been that good. Even the games that they have won weren't really convincing results either. I was at the game in in Frankfurt on the on the weekend where they were just absolutely demolished. And yes, Jerome Boateng was sent off. Um, and you know, a clever coach maybe would have no, that's the wrong way of saying it. Another coach would have maybe said, okay, look, this is why we lost the game. But they didn't lose the game because of that. I think I think it dates back to last year where they had a patchy patchy few games around this time of the year as well. Kovac sort of managed to get this the squad together again, um, get the results, and then Dortmund absolutely collapsed and basically gifted them the title. I think, you know, the patching over the cracks, especially in the dressing room, always was kind of underneath the surface. And then when they, during the summer, he didn't necessarily get the players that he wanted. Um, there were some players still in the dressing room that were still against him. His relationship to Thomas Müller has been a difficult one for pretty much the first day. And I think all those things ha- have been mounting. Now, when they lost 5-1 to Eintracht Frankfurt, initially the board and Kovac got together and said, okay, look, let's try to let's try to work this out. Let's have another two games, play Olympiacos, which I think they're going to win. They were going to win any anyways because the gap, the goal in quality is just so large. And then let's see how the game against Dortmund goes and then we'll take it from there. He then led the training session and at the training session he criticized George Gnabry. He criticized um, Kingsley Coman. He spoke spoke against a few other players and he realized apparently at the training session that his players weren't even listening anymore. He then 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 called the meeting with um, with the board and said, "I don't think this is this is we're going to be able to continue this." And the board said, "Well, we accept your resignation." So it went all very fast. It was a very confusing Sunday, uh, to be quite frank. But yeah, this this is basically long story short is he lost the dressing room or he never and you know to make it even more precise, he never gained the confidence of the dressing dressing room in the first place. And, and I mean, he, he enjoyed a, a fairly decent um, year in his first season in charge, um, winning the German treble. Obviously, they were knocked out by Liverpool in Europe um, mm-hmm. in that crazy game. And they, like you said, narrowly beat Dortmund to the title. So the cracks were kind of starting to show last season. Yeah, absolutely, they were. Uh, I, th- I think that the, the games against Liverpool are a great example. Um you know, Bayern going out in the round of 16 is unacceptable. This is a team that's only missed the semi-final of the Champions League three times in the last 10 years. Um, and for them, that was very embarrassing. And I think it was not just the way that they, they, they got kicked out, but the second leg there, it was a disaster, right? And this is no disrespect to Liverpool. They're one of the best sides in Europe. But for them to go out that way without a chance, they didn't feel that was acceptable. And I think... You know, I think if he hadn't won the double last year, he would have he would have gotten axed on that final day of the season. Even if he had won the championship and not the cup, he would have still gotten axed. If he had only won the cup, he would have still gotten axed. I think the fact that he then ended up winning the double, that saved him. But then he wasn't able to carry that momentum into the new season. And you know, the the, the problem from in many ways was that I think. The players didn't accept him from day one. Nico Kovac came in from Eintracht Frankfurt. He had a certain way to play. He had a very defensive way of playing. He wanted to play a counter-pressing game. And that's not what Bayern's style is like. Bayern was a club that was previously coached by Vivio Pankis, Carlo Ancelotti, 
you know, Pep Guardiola, Ottmar Hitzfeld, these were all coaches that won two or three Champions League trophies in their career. And all of a sudden, this young coach come in, Niko Kovac, was won one cup with Eintracht Frankfurt and is trying to tell the dressing room how to do things. I think he never really stood a chance. Manuel, so, Seth, sorry, Kev, go on. I guess his replacement will have a huge job on their hands. Uh, Manuel, who will be making up the list of candidates? I suppose, you think who do you think would be the best man for the job? When you see guys like Jose Marino has been mentioned already, maybe considering it is one of the biggest jobs in Europe, that part, uh, Maurizio Pochettini could have his head turned, perhaps? I think a coach that loses 7-2 to Bayern will not go to Bayern. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think Mauricio Pochettino has been heavily found out this year, and I don't think he. I think he's off that list. Um, Jose Mourinho, of course, always gets mentioned. I don't think they're going to go with him because no. um, they they want to they want to play a young side. Um, he's Jose Mourinho has been learning German. Of course, he's been linked to the club that I am at right now. Because uh, he is very good friends with Watzke, the, sporting, the, the CEO of Dortmund. Um, so this has been mentioned. But um, I think the coach that they, who they really want uh, is Eric Ten Hag, the Ajax coach. And Eric Ten Hag, of course, said, um, I believe yesterday or today, that he's not available for the job right now. Um, he did not say that he wasn't available in the summer. And this is, I think, where they might consider playing for time. Maybe yeah. bring, in, bring in someone who can be a stopgap. Um, you know, that's where a name like Ralf Rangnick, the former um, RB Leipzig coach, who is currently the head of sport at Red Bull. So he's overseeing the entire Red Bull empire, football departments, right? And he's currently working there. Um, he's been named. I don't... The one thing I wonder, though, um, RB Leipzig are a title contender this year. Are they going to give Bayern someone who can help them, right? So that's a question mark. And the other name I've seen, and this is, would be a, this would be maybe the perfect stopgap measure for them, it's Arsene Wenger, you know, someone mm. who can speak German, has tons of experience, has lots and lots of titles, can walk into this dressing room and, and give them some respect. It's not a long-term solution. He would know he would be there till the summer. He could win another couple titles, maybe, you know, maybe maybe even contend for the Champions League trophy that he hasn't won. And um, I think that, that might be a solution for them. Now, if they're going to go for that, I don't know. Um, I think they don't know, you know, because yeah. I, know they, I know they have made a couple calls. Thomas Tuchel and Eric Ten Hag both have said no, we can't. Tuchel said not at all. He's not going to do it next summer either. Eric Ten Hag has said in an interview in the past that if Bayern called, he would th- consider things differently. But then he has said yesterday, sorry, today that um, he's not available at this very moment. And in the summer, things could look different. So, you know, all points maybe a little bit towards that direction. Bring in a stopgap mm. and then try to see the season out and then go on bring in the right coach because the next coach has to be the right coach. They can't afford another situation where they're like fire a coach 10 match days in. And well, like you just alluded to there, um, this is the second time in quick succession that Bayern have got rid of, got rid of a manager mm. really early in the season after Ancelotti. Yeah. Um, and with Gladbach leading the league as they are and RB Leipzig looking like an increasingly powerful force in the German game at Nagelsmann, um, how important do you think this next appointment is for Bayern? It's probably at a really delicate stage for an obviously dominant team, but with perhaps more potential rivals than at any time in the past couple of years. Uh, how important do you see the next appointment being? Oh, it's very important. Before the Carlo Ancelotti firing, that was the earliest firing um, of earliest Bayern firing in a season since before, right? 
and now Nico Kovac was only two match days after. So they've done it now two times in a row, um, which is unheard of in, in Bayern's history. And I, I think it's also it's coming down to the fact that the league is changing. You know, they, the Bundesliga is turning back to what it used to be. When I grew up, the Bundesliga was a competition where, you know, every year someone else could win it. It would be like maybe Bayern win it and then the next year someone else won it. Right. Bayern would win it maybe twice and then like two other teams would win it. Um, and then they had this, this spell of dominance where they were one or maybe the best team in Europe for a spell of six, seven years. And I think that's just changing. Right. Um, and they have to they, I think they're coming to terms with the fact that the Bundesliga is the teams around him are getting better again. They, they, they are starting to close the gap and not new teams that previously haven't been quite that good. Are coming in like RB Leipzig. They're changing the face of German football because it's only going to be a question of time that they're going to be a big club, right? Borussia Mönchengladbach with Mark Rose have appointed a very, very good coach, it's, and they they are currently first in the table. Dortmund sooner or later will figure out whatever like whatever problems they have, and it, it actually already looked like it because they're very, very good against Wolfsburg. So the league is changing, and I think they have to come to terms with that, and they have to maybe go back to the time when they signed Robin and Ribéry and build a team from that, from almost from scratch again with young players. And they need to have the coach that can guide them through that. They can't, it has to be someone with a long-term vision. Um, Manuel, you refer to Ribéry and Robin there. And I mean, obviously they've left now and they were a pair of kind of aging players. And if you look at the squad at the moment, we're kind of seeing that again with Lewandowski and Muller, who are both into their 30s now. Um, obviously, they have a couple of great young players there. Um, and at the moment, they have Coutinho and Lone, who, who seems to be doing quite well. What's What kind of state is the squad is in? Is, is, is there an overhaul needed at some point? Or is is that is there enough to compete um, for the next year or two with a new manager? I think that Serge Gnabry and uh, Kingsley Coman will, are on the path of going to be those the next Ribery and Robin. They're not quite there yet. They're yet there actually. Um, the the one Lewandowski is going to be hard to replace. Yeah. Um, or maybe impossible to replace. I mean he is currently scoring a goal every sixty three minutes in all competition. Um, that's an unreal statistic. It, he's the best number nine in the world. Try to replace the best number nine in the world it's not possible. Um, they will have to start looking and that's going to be the next one. Thomas Müller, you know, he's been in a little bit in decline already. Uh, Hansi Flick said today that he wants to give him a more central role. Uh, I think he's doing that to settle the dressing room a little bit because he has not been at his best since, you know, European Championships 2016. And there's a player I think that is is very obvious in decline. Um, Manuel Neuer is another one. I think Manuel Neuer is playing a very, very good season. Um, he's very much recovered from, you know, he had an off year last year, which which was to be expected after such a long injury. But he, sooner or later, they will have to find a replacement for him as well. So the, the the construction side is not getting smaller, it's getting bigger, right? They have some very good young players, and Alfonso Davies is another young player, I think, who's going to blossom at this club. But he's only 19, it's going to take a lot of time. And I think they, they, they're slowly but surely coming to that reality that they, they will have to bring in new pieces every this this winter maybe next summer and they will have to find a coach that can oversee all of this and that's a very difficult thing to thing to do i guess looking at the table um and phil mentioned a couple of contenders there that are doing 
really well at the moment. It looks like this season is better than ever for someone other than Bayern to go and win the league. Um, Munch and Gladbach are, t- are top um, and Dortmund or Leipzig are second and third. Who, if any, or do you think Bayern can make some sort of comeback under new management? Who do you think has the best chance to kind of pounce on this weakened Bayern side? I think definitely, I mean, Dortmund, they have just as good as a squad, if not better than Bayern. They just need to, you know, for some odd reason, Favre has struggled this year. But once he sorts out his issues, I think they'll be good. Um, Leipzig, absolutely Leipzig. I mean, uh, under Nagelsmann, they they absolutely smashed Mainz on the weekend 8-0. You know, they had their little bit of a hunch, which is normal under Nagelsmann. The, the teams always, when he first came in at Hoffenheim as well, or in the beginning of the season, new players struggle a little bit underneath him because he's a very complicated coach to work with. Um, in a good way, but it takes some time to learn a system. But once the system is in place, um, he has done very, very well at Hoffenheim with a side that's not that good. Uh, you know, reached the Champions League twice. Um, of course, the first time was knocked out by Liverpool in qualification, but the second time, you know, straight into the group stage. Um, that's very difficult for a team like Hoffenheim. And now he in Leipzig, he has a budget that is three, four, five times as big with players that have a much higher talent ceiling. So I think they're going to be a big challenger for the title this year. Um, and Gladbach, you know, Gladbach have a, have a very good coach as well. Marco Rose, um, two very good years at Salzburg. Not just, you know, Austrian Bundesliga, of course, is easier to win. But he reached the semi-final of the Europa League with Salzburg as well, which is very difficult with a small Austrian club. So I think there's, there's maybe three clubs that can really challenge them. And I think Dortmund is probably still the prime candidate to um, take the title in the end. Um, back to the Leipzig for a moment, um, and obviously Nagelsmann has been highly rated for the last couple of years, but it's astonishing how well he has Leipzig playing, considering this is his first year in charge. Mm. And if he did win the league this year, that, that would probably go down as one of the finest achievements for a young manager. Um, how has he taken Leipzig to the next level? Obviously, you mentioned... Um, the, the funds and the budgets are, are greatly increased compared to Hoffenheim, but is he the real deal? Is he a manager who could probably go on to even bigger clubs in the future? Oh, uh, yeah, he will He will go to the biggest clubs in the world, but he's only 32. Um, you know, he's younger than me, which is... <laughs> <laughs> I just, just want to point this out. You know, he was a Bundesliga coach at the age of 29. Um, <laughs> uh, he he's, sounds like he's been around for a long time, but he's he's still younger than most players. And he's been very smart, not not going for... Uh, because he could have probably gone to Bayern this uh, last summer, right? But he's very smart that he didn't go do that. He went to Leipzig instead. Um, what has he done at Leipzig? Well, he's he's built on what Rangnick has built last year. Um, his training methods, he he never does the same training me- training uh, session twice. Every training session is new, which is astounding considering the amount of training sessions they do. So every training session is new, and um, players have said that it it can be very complicated at first to figure him out, but once you get used to it you improve dramatically as a player. And I think that's cur- Leipzig had that slump. I was at the Champions League game against uh, Lyon, a game that they were actually the better team. They just didn't put their chances away. Um, and then they had a couple of Bundesliga games as well where they also dropped points. Um, but then came that cup game against Wolfsburg that they won 6-0. And then they won the game on Saturday 8-0 against uh, Mainz. You know, so they scored 14 goals in two games against 
a very good side and a, okay, a team that isn't quite that good. But still, you know, that that's very good results. And you have the sense now, I mean, they're playing in, a, in the Champions League right now against Zenit and they're winning that game. You have the sense now that the players are getting it. Um, and they're still so close to first place, right? They, they, it's not like they dropped an enormous amount of points that could cost them the season. So I think they got it just in time. And um, if once once that team is rolling, it's it's going to be very impressive to watch because it's just such a quick type of football. You know, very quick touches, very hard pressing, um, structurally very very sound. Um, very surprising to the opponent because you never know what formation he's playing. I, I, I think um, we can expect great things from Julian Nagelsmann. Just quickly, Manuel, we mentioned the, the title race as, as a wider picture there, but it's a massive game uh, this weekend in mm. uh, their classic between uh, Munich and Dortmund. I know you're, you're tipping up Dortmund as potential title challengers. Uh, how do you see them handling the trip to Bayern this weekend? It's a massive game, isn't it? Um, with such a, with, especially with the story uh, that Kovac has been fired. Uh, sorry, fired. No, that's the wrong word. Mutual termination. It's just that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's such a, it's such a big game because of the story. And I think Dortmund were hands down favorites to to win that game on Saturday, right? Because of the way uh, Bayern were dismantled by Frankfurt. But of course, now the coaching change. What's that gonna What's that gonna mean? I'm at the game tomorrow at the Olympiakos game. I'm really curious t- to see how Bayern are gonna handle that game. Um, and, and really curious to see what Hansi Flick, the interim's manager, is doing with, especially with that backline, because they have no defenders left. Um, you know, Sule is injured, Hernandez is injured, um, Boateng is out. It's, I think he's been suspended now for two games because of his red card against Frankfurt. So they have to play uh, David Alaba. As a left back, a centre back, and Harvey Martinez, who hasn't played very much, and the defence has already been an issue to begin with, right, all season long, and now you're putting this ragtag kind of defence together. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how Dortmund and Lucien Favre, because the pressure is now on them, right, because they have they're now the favourites to win this game against a Bayern side that just made a coaching change, a Bayern side that has no defence. Um, and for Lucien Favre, it's going to be interesting to see how he's going to handle this pressure. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how, what side he's putting out tonight and what we can learn from that side tonight and what Bayern will do tomorrow in their game because it's all kind of just a stage setting for the big one on Saturday. And I think we can we can look at the two Champions League games and we can learn quite a lot of what how the two managers will properly approach that big game on Saturday. And I think... The way I see it, Bayern can almost go in a little bit more relaxed now because the coach is gone um, and they know that Dortmund are the favorites even though the game is at the Allianz. And I think that it's going to be very fascinating to see if Dortmund can actually handle the pressure because if they can't, that, what, what implications will that have for Lucien Favre who's also been under fire and what implications will have that to their title challenge? Again, I alluded to it already. Jose Mourinho and uh, Dortmund CEO Watzke are very good friends. Mourinho has been learning German. Brilliant stuff. I think we'll leave it there. Um, thanks for that, Manuel. Um, enjoy the game tonight um, and thanks for joining the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Today's show is brought to you in association with Classic Football Shirts, the world's biggest collection of football shirts. They are bringing their pop-up shop to Dublin South End Street from the 5th to the 10th of November. For more information on what to expect from this football hipster's paradise, you can find the guys on Twitter at Classic Shirts or on Instagram at Classic Football Shirts.